Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Welcome to our Easter service. My name is Femi Oshunui, and if this is your first time joining us um, online, or you know, first time actually being aware of City Church, we're so happy to have you on this special service. Now, in a few moments, I'm going to do a reading before we get into the sermon. But before I do that, I'm just going to ask us to pray together. Heavenly Father, as we want to go into your word now, we ask, oh God, that you speak to us. I pray, Lord, specifically that you meet with us, meet with that specific individual that you've ordained to come and listen to this message. I pray, Lord, that it will impact our lives and that our eyes will be turned to our Savior and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So our reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. It's a custom in City Church in honoring the word of God that after the reading is done, I would then say, this is the word of the Lord. And you respond very simply with, thanks be to God. 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a different Easter. It's an Easter like none other. It's an Easter that is unprecedented. I have never had to celebrate Easter like this before. And the reasons are obvious. Um, Just the last time I checked, and I'm sure the numbers have risen, it was about 1.5 million people who had uh, been infected or had been tested uh, to be infected with the coronavirus and had COVID-19. The same time I checked, it was over 85,000 people recorded worldwide that had died. 85,000 people. And the numbers are still rising. In other words, this new context that we find ourselves with the number of deaths that keep occurring, it's almost as though there is a stench of death in the air. We can smell it. And with the stench comes an awareness of death. The stench leads to an awareness. But with the awareness, we then are paused to reflect on death. Our thinking is filled with him, and then we reflect. So let me ask you, if you've undergone that process, as you reflect on death, have you thought of this question? What happens after death? A lot of people think about that. Some of us, it is that nothing happens beyond death. We just descend or we transit into nothingness. Now, if there was ever a time that we Christians could not be pretentious about Easter, it's now. You see, because most times, building towards Easter, Christians are 
we build up a context of victory, a context of celebration, and that's how we enter into Easter. But this context, the context we find ourselves, is very similar to the very first Easter. Because why? It was within a context of death. The message of Easter emerges from a context of death. This is why we start with Good Friday. But of course, it doesn't end there. Because the message of Easter is a message of victory. And for us in particular today, what we preach on Easter and what we are going to talk about today is this. There can be glory for you after death. Why? Because there was glory for Jesus after death. And so we've titled this Easter message, Glory Beyond Death. And we're going to look at it under these three headings. One. The fact regarding this glory. Second, the meaning of this glory. Third, how to attain to this glory. The fact regarding this glory, the meaning of this glory, and how to attain to this glory. So let's take the first one, the fact regarding this glory. Now, we celebrate Easter, really, because we are commemorating an actual event. That's what happens. We symbolize our birthdays, our anniversaries. Mine is coming very soon, right? We symbolize these things. We commemorate them because there was a historical event that happened. And so when we read this text, one thing you immediately see is that Peter is assuming that God raised him from the dead, as you see in verse 21. But not everyone that is watching believes that this is a historical fact. In fact, there will be some Christians that will say, I'm not one of those dogmatic Christians. I believe Jesus rises all the time in my heart. But I would say this to you. Maybe that's you, but in the first century, the people that Peter was writing to, nobody understood the resurrection in this spiritual sense, such that someone rose spiritually while the body of the person was still in the grave. So this is a new invention. Or you are the Christian that says, Resurrection, of course I believe in it. I believe in the resurrection of dead businesses. I believe in a resurrection of a dead marriage. I believe in the resurrection of a dead Nigeria. These dry bones shall live. Have you never heard of that? Of course I believe in a resurrection. Well, while I do want to see your dead business rise, I do want to see your dead marriage receive new life, and of course we are all looking towards a better Nigeria, with all due respect, it is not a message or the gospel is not about resurrections. It's about the resurrection. It was a historical fact. But then there will be some of us who are skeptics and will say, you know what? I know why Christians, you Christians have to believe it. It's religious faith. Um, and especially I know why Peter had to believe it. After all, wasn't he a disciple and follower of Jesus? I know it matters to you that it should be true. For me, I just decide to go with reason and logic over religious faith. Now, permit me to disagree with you because this is not asking you to have blind faith. Actually, what Peter is asking for is faith that is based on evidence. This thing actually happened. He did rise from the grave. 
Now, there are many uh, 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 arguments that support this, and if you look at our sermons, our past Easter sermons, hopefully will be in the description box, our past Easter sermons, we lay out some of these arguments, so please go and listen to a few of them. But I want to present one simple argument to you today. One argument, and you know what the argument is? Peter. Peter. You say, well, oh, Peter, Peter, I just told you that Peter would believe it because he was one of his disciples. And I'm saying, actually, the reason you think Peter, as an early follower of Jesus, should be rejected as a reason for it, I'm saying that, no, that's why you should accept him. And it's really on the basis of this. If I tell you something good about Manchester United, let's say that Manchester United played recently. If I told you that something, uh, something good about their play and you compare, or let's say, no, not I told you something good. Let's say my older sister, who is a Manchester United fan, told you something good about Manchester United's recent play, even though they lost 3-0, what are you going to say? I have to check. I have to check the stats. Because she's a fan. You expect her to be totally biased. She wants to believe that they played well. If, however, you met me, you see, when I started out as a football fan, I didn't start out just as a fan. I've been an Arsenal supporter for 20-something years, but I didn't really start out as a fan. I was initially first and foremost a Man United hater. I hate them with a passion. So if I have to admit to you, for instance, that the Manchester United teams of 99 to 2000, I know the treble winning team was 1999, but the 2000 to 2000 and 2000-2001, that they were really good, you almost don't need to check. Because I didn't want that to be the case. It just happened to be the case. You see, Peter's credibility is going to be built on the fact that he hated the idea of a resurrection. He didn't want it to happen. Now, for us to establish that, we do need to look at Peter's history with Jesus Christ. And the best place to look at it is in one of the historical accounts of Jesus Christ. As ministry, his life and his ministry. And this one we're going to look at is through the, a few passages through the Gospel of Mark. Why Mark? Because Mark was the earliest of them all, and Mark was the spiritual son and uh, companion of Peter. In other words, most scholars will believe definitely that the main source and inspiration behind the Gospel of Mark was Peter himself. So, let's see. So the first thing, time we find Peter in the Gospel of Mark is in Mark 1, 16 to 18. Jesus Christ has just been, um, he's just started his ministry. He's about to start his ministry. He needs people to come with him. And in 16 to 18, he finds Simon or Peter, later he's Simon, Peter, or Cephas, same person. We find, he finds him and Andrew, his brother, around the sea. They are fishermen. And Jesus told them that they should come, follow him, and it says that at once they left their nets and followed him. This is the beginning of Peter with Jesus Christ. And so Peter in this insignificant fisherman trade, we don't even know whether he was a very good fisherman. Chances are he probably was just an average guy just trying to make it. He wasn't controlling ports. He didn't have this logistical uh, fisherman business where he had many people in his employ catching and then many people supplying. No. He was just an ordinary fisherman. And so when he meets this Jesus Christ and says, follow him, he, you know, he's like, this guy is remarkable. Oh. This guy is remarkable. He actually has miraculous powers. <coughs> Peter was fascinated by the miracles, the displays of power of Jesus Christ. 
the authority of his teaching. And at some point, Peter started to think, oh, my career with this guy, if I stick with this guy, things can go well for me. So Peter started dreaming, he started having hopes. He started listening more and more to the things that Jesus was saying about himself. Because all the while, Peter is saying, forget that insignificant uh, uh, fishing trade. I am about to blow. And perhaps there was no greater sign that Peter saw that really solidified the fact that Omo, he has hit it big, was in Mark chapter 9. You see, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Of the 12 disciples, these were the three that were closest to him. He took them up to a mountain. And at some point, he left them. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the, the word is transfigured. His, 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 his uh, 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 clothes, they said, it became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And then two very important figures of Old Testament history, Moses and Elijah, appear with Jesus. And Peter is looking at this thing and he's like, what am I seeing? Elijah and Moses. And I know sometimes when we are, you know, you meet a star or you see something dazzling, the best thing for you to is to keep quiet. Peter did not. Peter then said, ah, Lord, I have, I, have a, I have a suggestion. Why don't we build three shelters for you, Moses, and Elijah? Now, remember I said that he's the inspiration behind the writing of Mark. Mark said that he said that because they were frightened. But Luke, who doesn't have that kind of connection to Peter, just said he did not know what he was saying. Peter thought, man, I have blown. This thing he records in his second letter in chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, this transfiguration moment. And so all of these things started to build into Peter's head that Jesus was this prophesied Messiah. So when Peter, Jesus asked Peter in Mark 8, 29, what about you when all these people are saying, I am Elijah or I am John the Baptist that has been raised back to life? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And with this, he had expectations that Jesus was the one who was going to come and conquer, a, almost like a military general that was going to conquer the Roman Empire and free Israel. And then when he does that, people like him, Peter, probably the closest to him, will have a right-hand seat with Jesus in the kingdom that Jesus would then establish. So he was thinking about his career. This is why when some guy, a rich guy, came to meet Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and asked, what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus said, look, your idolatry to wealth will stop you from being saved. And then later he then says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples, that's what the, the disciples are like, ah, it's really going to be hard. They said, who then can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter just said, look, Jesus, all this God, impossible, I don't know all of that. You see, it's the, with the mindset that had already built up, that had built up, that he then said to Jesus, said, I hope you know, and this is Mark 26, Mark 10, 26 to 28, Jesus, I hope you know, with all these things they are saying, <laughs> we, me, I have left everything to follow you. Everything. I don't have anything again. You see, Peter's mind has been built up. His hopes had been built up that this Jesus was the key for him to blow. Which is why in Mark 8, verse 31 to 32, when Jesus starts to tell Peter about a resurrection, Peter is having none of it. You know why? Because before he even gets to the resurrection, he talks about a crucifixion. 
he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise, Peter did not want to hear about the three days rising. He only heard about suffering and killing, and that did not feature into what he was expecting. So Peter called Jesus, took him aside, and said, look, I never want to hear about that again. This resurrection nonsense, this crucifixion nonsense, he said he rebuked Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection was something that featured in a plan where Jesus had to be killed. Notice, Peter only thought about Jesus being killed. If he believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, then what was his problem? It's because he did not believe the resurrection because he could not entertain a crucifixion. Which is why when things started to materialize as Jesus had predicted, when he was arrested, despite Peter's earlier assurances that no one, he would never leave Jesus Christ, when Jesus was read, uh, arrested, Peter three times denied him in Mark uh, 14, 50, uh, 67 to 72. Three times he denied him. A girl said, ah, I think you are one of uh, Jesus' disciples. He said, no, I'm not. She saw him again. He said, I think you are one of them. He said, I'm not. Then later, some other men now said, ah, you are surely one of them. You know what Peter started to do? He started to call down curses upon him. Like, if I am lying about this thing, let Shokonon, boom, let, let, let Amadioha pour fire upon me. Let thunder fire me. Peter said all of that. The Peter that said, I will never deny you. The Peter that was supposedly his disciple. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, Peter jackpot. That Peter is the one who we say had to believe in the resurrection. It's so bad that on the morning when the resurrection reportedly happened, it wasn't Peter that was there. It was women that went to, and it's not like the women believed Jesus was going to rise from there, because they went to embalm his body with spices and all of those things. When the women got there and didn't find him there, and they saw angels and they told them Jesus had been risen, when they came back, and here we look at Luke 24, 9 to 12, when they came back to tell the disciples about it, they doubted. Though Peter actually ran to the tomb, Peter himself, the Bible says, was still wondering to himself what had happened. He wasn't elated exactly just as Jesus said. This Peter was doubting. This Peter did not want to entertain the thought of a resurrection because it involved a crucifixion. And if he believed the resurrection, he would not have bothered about the crucifixion. And so, we still say, it's a hoax. It's a hoax. See, if this thing were a hoax, one of the things we have to consider is that Peter and the story of the resurrection would have been presented in a better light. Peter, were it a hoax, this person with an inordinate ambition, this doubter, this person who was denying his master would have been, all these things about Peter would have been excluded. Why were they included? Because of what, what happened. It was true. That's exactly what happened. 
Were it a hoax, then it would have been Peter, not the women whose testimonies, by the way, at that time, was not admissible in court. If a woman was a witness to something and they put it in court, it wasn't admissible. Why was it the women that were the ones that were the first people at the tomb? Were this a hoax that Peter was actually trying to create, to put himself, uh, uh, trying to create so that we could believe, were this a hoax, then Peter would have put in a better light. It would have been Peter, not the women, that would have found out about Jesus' resurrection. Peter would have been waiting at the tomb, not somewhere else hiding. And even after being told, he was still wondering about the thing. This leads me to another point. You see, my son, Timilain, is four. At this point, Timilain is beginning to have a heightened sense of an imagination. And he talks about legends. Right now, Timilain believes that he has all manner of superpowers. He um, has this bionic ability to hear different sounds from afar. He also has, he says, he's a super striker. And then he also has super strengths. He's able to move very quickly. He also has teleporting abilities. And because of that, according to the parenting skills that I have learned so ruthlessly from the Bible, I have bought into it. Why? Because if you have super strengths, I tell Timelay, you should be able to finish your food. Timelay has started to believe in legends. And what do legends do? Legends always build up. They always make things bigger than they are. And so if this were a legend, if this were not true, is this the ordinary way you present it? Don't make, you know, I know there are angels here and there. I don't think this is the way they were presented as it was presented in the Gospel of Mark or the other Gospels, the other three other Gospels. No, I think the way it will be presented is something like we see in the supposed Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Peter is not one of the authentic Gospels. The Gospel of Peter is a second century a book supposedly written by Peter. You know what happens when it comes to the resurrection? In the Gospel of Peter, what happens at the night of the resurrection? It says that all of a sudden a voice thunders from heaven. And when it thunders from heaven, there were two men that descended in a blinding light. It moved all the soldiers there. It decapitated them and they were on the floor. Very soon as they were descending, the stone, the large stone that blocked the tomb was thrust to the door and far off. And then these men entered into the tomb. And when they were emerging, just as the soldiers were beginning to come back to life, what did the soldiers see? They didn't see two men. They saw three men. The original two men were now holding, supporting a third man. And behind them, was a walking cross. And what did they say about these two men, the original two men? Do you know what happened? Those two men, they had heads that stretched all the way to the clouds. But not to be outdone by them, the third man, the one that rose from the dead, Jesus Christ, his own head stretched beyond the clouds. Oh, this was a magnificent sight. But there was one more scene. The voice in heaven then thundered and asked and said, Hast thou now made proclamation to them who have fallen asleep? The men did not answer. Jesus himself did not answer. No, we find out that the walking cross is also a talking cross. The cross said, Yes. 
That is the way to cook up a resurrection story. Not this ordinariness that we find here with women that were just going to embalm someone that was dead with doubting disciples that had been dispersed. No, because though it was an extraordinary story, an extraordinary event, though there were angels there, truly, the, extraordinary, the, the, the truth about the resurrection is shown in the fact that the extraordinary event meets us in the ordinariness of our lives. The magnificent plan of God is it comes together with our mundane plans. You see, Peter's credibility to speak on this is not just that he is a first-hand eyewitness, but it's also because he was not wanting a resurrection. The reason he believed it is because it was true. Peter showed us, even, the, even skeptics at the time, what they said was that we, they had to cook up a story that Jesus' body was stolen. Now, think about that. If they said Jesus' body was stolen, they've admitted certain things. One, Jesus existed. Two, Jesus um, died. Three, Jesus was buried. Four, Jesus' body was not in the tomb. For them to say that it was stolen, it meant that they knew there was a tomb of Jesus and he was buried there and that he was no longer there. Now, they don't admit the reason that Peter admits. But to say that Peter, because he was a follower, we cannot trust his testimony means we don't understand who Peter really was. You see, the most plausible explanation for a sinfully ambitious, doubting, unbright Jesus denier to now risk his life on supposedly what is a hoax is that it wasn't a hoax. Peter saw the risen Jesus. Paul, a companion of Peter, later says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 to 6. He appeared, Jesus appeared. After his death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So he's saying, go and check. You can go and ask them. Just as the tomb was there, go and check. You can go and ask them. He said, even though some of them have died. In other words, the best explanation for why people who dispersed Jesus like Peter, people who denied Jesus like Peter, why all of a sudden they are risking their lives for the message of Jesus Christ, the best explanation is exactly what Peter tells us in, in this verse 21. He said, God did it. God raised him from the dead. That takes me to my second point. The meaning of this glory. For some of us who now be saying, you know what, this is what I can't stand about you Christians. Christians like you. With all the COVID-19 that is going on and all the problems in the world, this is the time you think to give a historical and logical analysis. You think that's all we need? How insensitive are you? And I want to say to you, actually, it's precisely because of the COVID-19 issues and all the problems in the world that we should be talking about this now. I want to admit that you are correct. Far too many people reject the resurrection supposedly on intellectual and historical grounds. There are many other reasons I can give, but we can't now because of time. But I agree with you that we shouldn't only just be talking about the historical fact of it. We should be talking about the meaning of it. How is it relevant to us? 
find out how it's relevant to us, we first have to find out the meaning. And the meaning is found in a principle we're all very aware of. What is that principle? That death precedes glory. Death precedes glory. You know what I mean? If you want a well-toned body, a well-toned glorious body like the one that you are looking at right now, you have to die to certain kinds of food. If you want a glorious marriage, you have to die to certain forms of individualism in your life. You are no longer single. If you want a glorious examination score, then you have to die to social media and Netflix binging. Why? Because death always precedes glory. Notice in the text what it says. It says, God raised him from the dead and glorified him. In other words, the first step towards Jesus' glorification was his resurrection from the dead. In other words, that is, as great as Jesus was and as fascinated as Peter was when he was with him, that life that Jesus lived, as great as it was, there was a glory that he did not possess in that life. John says that in John 17 verse 5. He only received that glory after his death and resurrection. That is, after death and his resurrection, Jesus received a glory. The death, the, after his death, the resurrection was a gateway into his glory. Jesus was not simply raised back to life. Because if he was raised back to life, he would be raised back to that inglorious or less than glorious life that is being spoken about here. No, what Peter is trying to tell us is that Jesus didn't come back to life in the resurrection. Jesus went forth into life, into eternal life. And that is where he was glorified. And it's because of that, because Jesus resurrected and entered into that life, Paul says in Romans 6 verse 9, that for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no longer any mastery over him. Which somebody then says, so how does that connect to us? It's all about Jesus. And I'm still not sure how this whole thing works. Well, Paul, Peter's friend and companion, gives the whole meaning and some of these connections uh, a thorough treatment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, how does it connect to us? Well, Paul says in, um, in, the, in, in, verse 20, in verse 25 to 26, paraphrasing it, Paul says that when Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven and now he became the king of the world. And in doing this, what he's administering in his kingdom is that he's bringing all his enemies to under his footstool. He's going to defeat all evil. And then that the final enemy that will be defeated is death. But notice, it's not death to be defeated for him because he conquered death in his own death. He's bringing the death of his followers under his footstool. In other words, if you follow Jesus Christ 
in the same way Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, you also will. So when you read verses 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, he said, look, the sequence of the resurrection is that Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself first, but then those who belong to Jesus when he returns. Because just as in Adam, death came by one man, also eternal life will come by one man, Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus' resurrection is the catalyst, is the thing that triggers and makes possible the resurrection of everyone else that will follow after him. That's the first thing. It matters to you. But then the next thing is, how does it work? And Paul is asked that question in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And then Paul, in, from verse 35, all the way to the end, he gives it a thorough treatment. I'm not going to look at everything, but we'll look at what he says in verses 35 to 37, and then 40, 40, um, 42 to 44, and 53 to 54. I'm going to be summarizing the thoughts there. Now, I'm not a great farmer. I have done a bit of cutting, a little bit of uh, some weed with cutlass, and it bruised my hands. Um, I think I probably would have been better at the more difficult stuff, not that kind of mundane thing. But here's the thing. Paul is not a good farmer either. But Paul knows something that I know, even though we are not horticulturists, that even you know that is watching that is not a farmer. We know something about if we wanted to harvest apples. How would you harvest an apple? Well, let me tell you three things you will not do. You will not sow an apple fruit to reap apple fruit. Won't work. Don't go and plant an apple fruit to reap an apple fruit. You will not sow an apple seed to reap an apple seed. Won't work. And you will not sow an orange seed to reap an apple fruit. Neither of those three would work. No, what must you do? Listen very closely to my class. You must sow an apple seed to reap an apple fruit. This is what Paul says in verses 35 to 37. He says this is how the resurrection works. In other words, notice there is a continuity and there is a discontinuity. Something has to die for something else to emerge. When you sow an apple seed, what does not come out is that same apple seed. When you sow an apple seed, you get apple fruit. Notice the continuity. It is apple seed to apple fruit. Apple to apple. In other words, when the resurrection happens, you in this life will be you in the resurrection life. Jesus, who walked with his disciples, was the same Jesus after his resurrection. Point one of how it works. But the second thing is the discontinuity. It was an apple seed to an apple fruit. It was seed to fruit. The seed had to die for the fruit to come alive. It is going to be you, but it is not going to be in the same form. 
And so in verses 42 to 44 and 53 to 54, it gives us this principle. We sow something in different and it yields something else. It is the same person, but it is a different form. We sow perishability, but we reap imperishability. That is the ability for you to decay, the ability for you to have sickness, the ability for you to, to have your body failing. That is the perishable that is sown, that dies through the resurrection and imperishability comes. We sow weakness in all our forms, in all our bodies, both spiritually and, and physically. We sow weakness. What comes out? Power. We sow Mortality, but what do we get? Immortality. You will never die again. We saw natural. It's a natural body, but now it is a body made by the Holy Spirit. And so the summary of it all is that it is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. There is a glory beyond the resurrection. However we die, listen folks, Jesus' resurrection means that death is not the gateway into nothingness. It is not a gateway into insignificance, but rather it is a gateway into glory. It opens us up into far more, a far more significant life than this one can ever give us. Because of the resurrection, you don't have to feel like your disappointing career in this life has won. There is a resurrection. You don't have to feel like COVID-19 that is taking so many people's lives has won. There is a resurrection. You don't have to feel like poverty that you have tried to escape in this life has won. There is a resurrection. You don't have to feel like that marriage that is falling apart and you've given your best in. That divorce has won. Why? There is a resurrection. Even if you never overcome in this life, in some of those things, despite all the things that you have tried to do. You don't have to give up because there is a better life to come. There is a resurrection. Which is why Paul says that if in this life alone we have Christ Jesus as our hope, we have most men to be pitied. No matter what you think you have victorious in, in this life, there is always a disappointment lurking behind. And even if you've achieved all your life and everything you've had was wonderful, when you die, what happens? It's all gone. But Paul tells the, uh, the Christians in Thessalonica, when we mourn for those who are asleep in Christ, let us not mourn as those who do not have hope. We have a hope. There is a resurrection. This is not saying that we should not try and strive to work hard, to achieve our dreams. It is not saying we should not take precautions. It's not saying we should not live a healthy life. We are saying you must do all of these things. God cares about your body. He cares about your mind. So you do those things. But nonetheless, we don't do them as though they ultimately will give us what we want. No, there is a resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection means you can partake of that resurrection on one condition. That brings me to my final point. How to attain to this glory. Imagine you are Peter. You put your trust in no one but yourself. Remember what he said to Jesus? He says, if all leave you, I will never leave you. 
Not only have you put your trust in no one but yourself, you've also put all your hope in a certain expectation, a certain dream. He told Jesus, we have left all to follow you. I've left all to follow you. (laughs) We must conquer Rome together. And then what happens? Self-disappointment comes because you are not as trustworthy as you thought you were. You deny Jesus. You run away like Peter did. Or your expectations of the life that you hope for is then dashed. What will you do? Despair? Not live? Take your life? Maybe now trust someone else entirely? Or put your hope in another failing dream? If you ask Peter what he learned, he will say this, as he says in verse 21, don't put your hope and your trust in yourself. Put your faith and hope in God. You see, evidence we give in the in first point and meaning we give in the second point, they are important, but they are not enough for us to partake of that resurrection. It still requires commitment. Evidence and meaning means that it determines the nature of the faith. We're not just asking you to have blind faith, but it is not sufficient, it's not the sufficient way of apprehending the faith. It requires a commitment. That is, you have to ask yourself, if this thing is true, what does that mean for me? Do I accept that? Do I accept the demands of Jesus upon my life? Do I accept the fact that I should no longer trust and live for myself or live for others but live for God? Do you? Because why would you continue to trust yourself for other people? I mean, for instance... Our hopes and our plans for most of us are now crumbling because COVID-19 was not planned for. But as we see in verse 20, where he says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in this last time for your sake, God's plan for your eventual resurrection has not been hindered one bit by COVID-19. It is on its scheduled timetable because it began before the world was created. You are not an afterthought. So put your faith and your hope in God. Somebody will say, what does that look like in a world still filled with so much uncertainty, especially a world where I can see all the problems around me, but I cannot see God, neither can I see Jesus. Well, as some of the people in City Church know, though my uh, my title is the lead pastor of this church, The title I like the most, some of you are already saying it, is what? We don't have a CFO, we don't have a CEO, we don't have a CTO, we have a CSTO, a Chief Storytelling Officer. Welcome to my story. Story, story, once upon a time, there's a story told about a boy who has the hope of becoming a man. To do so, he must go through a rite of passage in the forest. And so his dad takes him into the forest at night, blindfolds, and tells him not to remove the blindfold, nor cry out for help to anyone until the morning rays come. If done successfully, he will become a man. So his father places him on a tree stump and he is left alone. The night comes. He is terrified. 
He hears all kinds of noises. Surely they must be wild animals. Or surely there may be somebody around that is going to, another human being that is going to come and hurt him. And as the wind blew and, the, and shook his stump, tempted to remove the blindfold, he resisted all the while knowing that if he passed this test, because of the trustworthiness of his father, he will receive the reward he hoped for. That is, he will become a man. After the terrible night had passed, the sun appeared. The rays came. He removed his blindfold and he thought to himself, finally, I am now a man. It was then he discovered that right next to him, on the next stump, his father had been there. He'd been watching him the entire night and also protecting him from any harm. He became a man because of his evidence-based trust in his dad and also because his dad was there to protect him. You see, if he removed the blindfold, even though his father was there to protect him, he would not have received his reward because he did not trust him. God has given us evidence of Jesus, but if we don't put our faith in him, we don't partake of the resurrection. We don't partake of glory beyond death. But what if his dad wasn't there? He may have been harmed if he didn't, re if he, if he didn't remove the blindfold. In other words, his hope could not have been secure. His dad was not there to take him to give him that reward. But God that raised Jesus from the dead is the God that is watching over you. When Peter says, put your trust in him, he's not just saying he has shown you Jesus has risen from the dead. He's saying the plan that he started from the beginning of the world that he will bring to the end of the world, despite giving you Jesus as the evidence that this thing will happen, he is always watching over you. I will not leave you nor forsake you, he says. Put your faith and your hope in him and Bet you me, you will get your reward. You see, trusting and hoping in the God who raised Jesus from the dead will always be, means that that God will always be with you to ensure you experience this glory beyond death. Will you come to him? Come. On this Easter morning, with all the uncertainty that the COVID-19 has set up, with all our foundations being shaken at the root, you need a foundation that can never be shaken. He has risen from the dead. Come. And for those of us who are Christians, but have never had this centrality of the gospel in our lives, and so our hearts are quaking for fear, we are like Peter who starts to disbelieve Jesus. When Jesus calls him out on a sea, as Jesus is walking on the sea, he looks at Jesus when Jesus tells him to come. Each time he looks at Jesus, he's walking on water. The moment he looks at the winds and the waves, he starts to sink. The moment you are being filled with the news all around, now your heart are quaking for fear because the things that you love for in this world, the things that you live for the most and you love the most in this world are now being threatened. It is not that you have to then say, how can I secure them? It is turn your eyes back to the thing that is most secure. When we do this, 
when we grow in this faith and we grow in this trust, when we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ, when we anticipate the reward that he will bring, then fear is all of a sudden vanished and extinguished in our lives. All of a sudden we live in freedom. All of a sudden we can move out and challenge the world and strive for all the achievements of the things we want in this world, all the while knowing that even if they are taken away from us, the most important thing will not be taken away from us. Why? Well, God has promised. God who watches over you will deliver. Put your hope and your faith in him. Because when you do so, he promises that just like he did for Jesus, you will experience glory beyond death. Let us pray. Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.